The views presented are those of the speakers and do not necessarily represent the views of the Department of Defense or its components. Zoomies, welcome back and get ready for a special episode. Today we have acquisitions officer, Lieutenant Colonel Matthew Ross joining the show. A prior Army Enlisted Academy grad with lots to share about his operational experience. We touch on topics like resourcefulness within the job, deployments and TDYs, customer satisfaction, and lots more. Tune in for all the details. Thanks for listening. Lieutenant Colonel Ross, thanks for coming on. Thank you for having me. So um, we have we have quite a few things to get into today. This is a special episode for me as well because acquisitions is something that I'm personally interested in. So sorry to all the Jags and Hilo pilots out there, but this one this one's for me. <laughs> so Lieutenant Colonel Ross, do you mind giving some background about yourself, where you're from, what you've done? You're a grad here. Just a little background about yourself. Yeah. So. Um, uh uh, as you mentioned, I'm a, I'm a grad, but my military time actually started uh, before that. Um, I wanted to go to the academy since sixth grade. Okay. Uh, my my parents took me out here on a tour, and and uh, ever since then, I've I've always wanted to to be a part of it, right? Um, so that started pretty early. I had some friends in high school who uh, went into junior ROTC, so I did junior ROTC. So I was wearing a uniform. Uh, yeah, as a freshman, mm-hmm. <laughs> right off the bat, marching around, act, acting all, all tough. And then uh, those same friends, uh, they decided to go and join the Army. Um, and someone had mentioned, uh, it was actually a, a lieutenant colonel from another uh, junior ROTC program. We had, you know, sister okay. units that we would get together and hang out. And he said, you know, you got to learn how to follow before you can learn how to lead. And so I was like, all right. So I signed up like my peers to go join the army, because um, with the intention of still coming back to the academy. Mm-hmm. Um, so what they did is in the Army National Guard, you can actually join your junior year of high school, and then between your junior year and senior year, you can actually go to Army Basic Training. Um, so I was in the guard. I signed on uh, the the earliest I could sign on, and I, I gave up the last good summer of my high school career and, <laughs> and went and played soldier in the summer. Yep. Um, so, and then my senior year, I applied to the academy and got picked up. So then the Army let me go, and I came to the academy. Uh, a lot of good experiences, did uh, track, um, walked on two years in a row, and broke my wrist in unarmed combat. And uh, so that made it really hard to, to train. Okay. And at that same time, I knew that I wanted to get into mechanical engineering. That was just, like, my passion. So mm-hmm. I wanted, I really wanted to, to, to do that. And... To be honest, I'm not the smartest guy. I finished with a 265, blood, sweat, and tears. I worked my butt off for that. I'm proud of it. Yeah. Um, but I was having trouble balancing it all, and so I chose um, I chose um, my degree over over track. But I still have a huge passion for track. I, in fact, it's great to be back here. I volunteered on a couple of the track meets, and I'm uh, one of the OICs for the triathlon club. So it's really fun to continue to just be engaged in those types of activities. Uh, I. I have a huge affinity for for team sports and yeah um so um yeah that was that was neat so yeah i finished out with mechanical engineering and then 
from there went to my first uh, tour out in Oklahoma City at Tinker Air Force Base. I was a jet engine engineer um, working on the gearbox for the C5, uh, so the Galaxy. And yep. then, big plane. So what's kind of cool, and this turned out to be like a bit of a theme from my career, was I, it was like a low altitude thing. I was working on a gearbox for a jet engine for just a singular fleet of aircraft. Then I got to go be a staff engineer for the Air Force SES. If you know what SESs are, they're like civilian equivalents to generals, right? Okay. So, um, like even our um, Secretary of Defense is an SES, like level 50 or whatever. I'm just joking, <laughs> but they're, they're way up there. But it's we have civ- civilians who um, carry similar ranks and, and responsibility to generals do, and they provide that stability and experience. And then our, their generals we rotate in and out for diversity, for experience, and, and of course, just having that uniform is really important. But So I worked for the SES, who was in charge of all the jet engines for the Air Force. Mm-hmm. Um, so going from like low altitude to the proverbial high altitude, I could see all things that were going on. We did a whole bunch of um, jo- joint work with the Army, Navy, um, Marine Corps, trying to improve the safety of the aircraft. So that was pretty neat. Uh, and then I went on a completely different tangent and did an OPEX tour, applied um, for a, called, a program called SAPE, or Sa- Space Acquisition Exchange Program. Okay. And I came out here to Shriver, and I was a satellite operator. Uh, so I actually had to go, like, you know, equivalent of IQT out at uh, Vandenberg Air Force Base for six months. So I did s- satellite operations training out there. And then I came out to Shriver. I did that for three years, um, did everything from... Uh, weapons and tactics, like how do you use the satellite um, for uh, either what it was intended or what it wasn't intended. Um, and then uh, I also did orbital, I was an orbital analysis chief uh, for uh, um, WGS, the Wideband Global SATCOM. And that, that I think I remember that from the contrails. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> WGS one and two I helped put in in orbit. That's and, sweet. And avoid, uh, we actually avoided a couple collisions up in the you know geosynchronous orbit so that was pretty cool um talking about collisions you hear what yeah. happened in the news like i don't know i saw it this morning in mitch's no they sent out like some like refrigerator size like space shuttle oh yeah or they're trying to alter the orbit of an asteroid yeah <laughs> yeah i uh i actually watched the video of because they put a camera on the front of that bus okay. or whatever that, that projectile so you can see it zooming in. I was hoping they would have like a side profile so you can just see like the, yeah. the explosion, but <laughs> That's I, scary. I, I didn't have enough time to scan all the way through to, to see it, but yeah. Uh, I Sorry to interrupt. Stuff. No, I'm Armageddon all the way, man. I love that movie. Um, so it's it's a lot of fun. Uh, so yeah, it's, it's space is, again, go to that high altitude perspective, right? Mm-hmm. Learning how, uh, at one point I'm learning how aircraft uh, operate in our atmosphere and then the next satellites up in space and it's a totally different paradigm. Okay. Uh, so I totally dig it. Um, I had a one year tour as an exec uh, for the Space Innovation Development Center commander. And so that was pretty neat. I got to work with programs like Air Force 10 Cap um, and a couple other um, Air Force Fusion Center, um, a couple other special programs. And from there uh, I was then pulled back into acquisitions. So my first my first tour as a lieutenant was a 6-2E engineer type, which is, I was on the depot side, we were doing the maintenance, um, uh, you know, the sustainment side of the jet engines. And on this side now is getting pulled into um, system program office, which is where you develop and produce and deliver. 
um, capabilities. And so uh, this is like anything from inception of an idea to, hey, let's go strap it on an aircraft to see if it does something that we really need to do to mm -hmm. actually um, pro mass producing them because we need a whole bunch of these weapon systems, right? And so I went out um, uh, back into the airborne systems working on Intel uh, capabilities. So things like EOIR, um, hyperspectral, it's pretty, it was a lot of fun um, to, to see all of those different technologies and that was right in, in the thick of um, global war on terrorism. And, okay. you know, trying to track high value targets or, you know, um, uh, figure out where a, a hidden, uh, you know, um, IED was or, or those types of things to protect our troops. Um, those were the types of sensors we were um, trying to rapidly field. Okay. And so um, that was great because we're trying to get capability out to the warfighter, right, as fast as possible. And we needed it. We needed it bad. Um, so we were constantly strapping stuff on um, on U-2s and C-130s and Predators and Reapers and trying to get uh, capability out there to, to show that we can use that capability to help us uh, fight the fight so it's really like you can tinker with these things it's not just like oh this is like a model and we can't really do much to it outside of like what's given to us like you can strap something to any like drone or aircraft and it all depends it on your determination okay i like that mindset yeah resourcefulness um so Wait. what part of your career exactly did you switch from like say that engineer side to the acquisitions uh that was this that was the side i went from I did jet engine engineering, and then I was satellite operator for OpEx, and I, when I came back in, I came into a program manager role. Okay. Um, so they allow you to do that, right? 6.2, 6.3 are fairly interchangeable, and, and if for the most part, if you look at the 6.2 career field, um, it it um, gets to the top of the career field pretty quick, and the, the opportunities for 6.2 diminish quite quickly, and most 6.2s transition into a 6.3 program management role. Okay. Having that engineering background as a program manager is a strength, um, at least in my in my book. I don't think that you're weak without it, but um, I've always, even my even those in my management class, I say if you think that you can just, um, you know, if you have a line in the back of your head that says, well, whatever my engineers tell you, you should go with. If that is what you think management is, you're wrong. Mm -hmm. You need to be. Um, uh, you don't necessarily have to know how to do the engineering, but you need to understand it. You need to be able to advocate for it. Yeah. Because the engineers, they're not always going with you up to the Pentagon. They're not helping to explain why you got to defend the budget, right? Mm -hmm. And they may not be able to put it in terms um, that the budget, uh, you know, anal the budget analyst is going to be able to understand. So you got to be that go-between. Yeah. Um, the other aspect is, you know, engineers, they always want to tinker more and more and more, right? It's never good enough. Okay. Which is totally cool. I, I respect that. But at the end of the day, we got to get capability out there. And we got to know that what we're building is something that um, is actually of value. Mm -hmm. If you don't put it in the hands of operators, it delivers zero value. It doesn't matter how amazing it is yeah. um, or how amazing you think it is. You won't know how amazing it is until you put it in their hands. Yeah. So that's where that determination is, right? And having that, um, that drive to say, as a program manager, I'm going to um, hold my entire team accountable. And you know what? Hey, I know that you want to do this one more thing or you want to add this thing on, but I'm willing to take risk on that because I want to get this out here and validate that what we've been building is actually a capability. And you know what? We might learn that it's great, but if we did this and focused our efforts on this, it would make it even better. Mm -hmm. Well, if we hadn't done that and we were working on this other thing, that may not have been value added, right? Yeah. So 
Um, it's just having that, that drive and that determination. Yeah, I also think having those, like like you said, underlying knowledges in different fields. Mm -hmm. Like I think I came from, in high school, I went to a trade school and I was um, like an apprentice mold maker. And I think working with my hands and like understanding the engineering that goes into making something like a mold can, like that, like pre-existing knowledge, it can help you understand what the end product will actually be how things can be adjusted, things of that sort. Yeah. So I understand completely what you're saying. Yeah, I'll probably, this is probably me, you know, drinking the Kool-Aid or, or <laughs> you know, giving the pitch, but um, I, it is a passion of mine. So is, you know, I, I, I respect the, the thought process about like, hey, why is our STEM course so big here at the academy, right? Mm -hmm. um, and I go back to, as a program manager, I leveraged, and then sometimes a lot of the success we had was because we had program managers who, um, we're driving the technology. We're driving the engineers to go do something. Mm -hmm. And if they abdicated their responsibility of that overarching responsibility to drive that technology to the engineers, it, it's not likely that we would have been as, as successful. Okay. Um, and so, you know, I've used every single one of my core classes, believe it or not, um, as a program manager. And I argue that in a lot of ways, um, most of our career fields, we're going to leverage things that we've done. Even as pilots, as force support, you're going to be realizing um, that you're going to leverage those. So mm -hmm. doesn't mean you have to be an expert on it. But I find if I'm able to help people realize, like, hey, you actually might use this. Mm -hmm. It's not just a class because we want to this or that. No, it's really something that you can use out there. And it'll make you a better leader and make you a better operator. Um, it'll help you have better awareness for what's going on out there. Mm -hmm. um, and like I said, you're not gonna, you may not have an A plus in Astro, but understanding that everything that you do might be going through space and understanding how that works and understanding how you might, uh, as a pilot, might need to use your Link 16 to be able to communicate or get um, you know, bomb coordinates or those types of things. Hey, that's all, that's physics. That's electronics, that's space, understanding all that, that you can't just, you've got to have line of sight. Yeah. You've got to know the orbit of the satellite, mm -hmm. right? <laughs> yeah. And you've got to understand those things. It doesn't mean you have to be the one who puts it in space and maintains its orbit, but you've got to have an understanding of, of what that means. If, am I using a low Earth orbit? Well, I'm going to have 10 minutes of use out of that satellite before I lose a signal, right? Mm -hmm. Okay, that's cool. If that's all you take away, that's amazing. That's why we want you to have those things, right? Um, so, but that's just, that's kind of me and my, my high horse. I, <laughs> I respect that. I, I know it's hard uh, taking some of those classes, um, but I, I do think it's important. And even on, you know, even on, the, on the, the fuzzy side, there's a lot of, you're going to use a lot of the fuzzy classes too. Yeah. So, no, um, I think I, I, as much as I don't like having two years, like I'm not, I'm a sophomore. I'm not, I haven't taken one like major class, mm -hmm. but like thinking back to like behavioral science, those are things like, I don't know, you can make the connection to like what you're learning in school to how you can use that in a leadership position. I use you know? that stuff. All. I use behavioral science. All the time. <laughs> yeah. Well, to move on. Yeah. So what exactly is the mission set of say an acquisitions officer and what does that look like? Ultimately, it should be uh, empathizing and getting capability to the warfighter. Okay. Period. That's the, that, that should be the mission. Okay. Deliver the, deliver the most relevant capability you can to the warfighter. How does that work? It, 
Can you be more specific? Yeah. Like, so basically, I mean, you're talking about like how do you get it from point A, like say the producer getting things developed, having your engineers, your scientists, your finance finance officers, and like making them come up with a product to make sure that the warfighter is. Can you like walk me through that process? Yeah, I think the most important thing is um, is don't spend too much time planning. Like you, you do have to have a plan, mm-hmm. but if all you do is plan and spend all your time planning and building, but you don't put the capability in the hands of the warfighter, um, you're likely not going to build something that's relevant, and you're going to take too long, and it's going to be a waste. Um, but to answer, if if you want to kind of know like the day in the life of an acquisition officer, how we get capability. Sure. Um, for me, as an acquisition officer, you are kind of making sure the entire team is moving in the same direction, whether it's your finance, your engineering, your contracting officer, um, all of those, and and whoever is doing the the development, right? Um, all of those pieces have to move together, and you have to watch all of them. You can't abdicate any of those away. Mm-hmm. Um, you you may have areas that you're more passionate in, but if you just focus on those areas that you're passionate in, you're gonna lose. Cause you know, finances are gonna come in, oh crap, we overspent, or uh, we didn't go advocate for more funds, or we used the wrong color of money. Um, so there's, there's a, a lot to it. Um, you've got to manage your budget, so Every single year, it's changing um, from one year to the next. It comes from Congress. There's a whole appropriation process. It's called the PPPNE. It, it'll bore your ears off. <laughs> but when you understand it and you know how to advocate for it and plan for it, then you can be effective. Is that the color of money that you were talking about? So like that's, that's part of it. Just like yep. allocation. Of- so there's colors and years of money. So I okay. can't. You know everything. Everything that Congress hands to us is supposed to be tied to a specific thing that you that you deliver okay they don't just say here's a hundred million dollars and and have fun yeah it's um you have to say no i think i need a hundred million dollars to go and build 50 uh boats right and then you're expected to deliver 50 boats right? maybe <laughs> <laughs> i'm so i've i've served joint right that's so right after i worked uh, in uh, with ISR, I went down and did AFSOC and then AFSOC Mobility. Then shortly thereafter, I did acquisitions for SOCOM. Right, so I'm, I'm, I'm kind of a joint guy. Anyways, I've done. You won't, you won't utter the words. Yep, yep. As a grad, you won't you'll, utter the words. You'll, you'll. Well, I say I actually greet our Navy brethren and sisters with fair weather and following seas. And at some point, you'll understand that. But that's kind of just a it's a it's a, it's a saying. It doesn't mean that you don't uh, root for the Air Force whenever mm-hmm. it comes time for, fo- for a football game. I, yeah. always do that. <laughs> I always love some good inter-service rivalry, but you'd be, you'd be amazed what you can learn and appreciate from the other services. Yeah. I know we kind of got off track there. Um, so, yeah, from there's the budget side of things, and it's everything from when you get the money, how do you spend it, and you can only spend it on certain things and certain types of contracts. Um, you have to spend it a, in a certain per- period of time because – Hey, if they gave you the money, it had to be for something important. Mm-hmm. And if you're not getting after it, then they have other things that are just as important. Mm-hmm. So that's the finance side. The contracting side is, for the most part, um, we don't do in-house development, right? Um, we don't have a bunch of um, individuals who go and build things from scratch. Excuse me. We have um, 
in the program management acquisition world, a lot of it's oversight. A lot of it is um, you put on contract for a contractor to build a capability. Okay. So, so does that mean like your engineers aren't doing as much work as say like Lockheed or like Northrop Grumman? They're overseeing. Okay. Right? They're ensuring that Lockheed is delivering something that's going to work, right? So they're there to, they're the government's eyes and ears to make sure that what Lockheed is building to the requirement um, actually is meeting the requirement, right? Okay. And it meets the, the, you know, part of the requirements are safety and suitability and all those types of things. So they're making sure that they're not cutting corners because it'd be great. It's great that the weapon system works until it kills a soldier because of um, safety oversight or, you know, just not paying attention to those types of things. Mm -hmm. So the engineers are, um, they're looking at plans, they're approving plans, they're making sure things are going in the right direction. Mm -hmm. um, so typically you put a contractor on contract to go and build something. Um, and even if you're not putting a contractor on contract, you still need supplies, you still need materials and the contracting officers are gonna help you go and get that, right? Mm -hmm. um, so there's a whole nother world of uh, when it comes to uh, contracting that, that you have to come to understand as well. So you'll go take Con, con 90, which is a, um, uh, what is it? It's uh, it's part of your continuing education for for acquisitions, right? Okay. So you go and learn about types of contracts. You'll learn about the any deficiency laws, and um, you know, it's it's a lot of fun um, to work with the right contracting officer with the right mindset. Um, you can still do things that are legal, moral, and ethical, and get things done. Okay. Um, a lot of times, I'll run into contracting officers who. Uh, say we can't do that, and those are uh, that's that's the wrong way to start a conversation off with me. Mm -hmm. um, and I, you know, I appeal to their sensibilities. Like, okay, I want you to go TDY with me. Let's go downrange. I want you to see what capabilities our our warfighters currently have. Okay, we've got to do better. And most times, when you start helping them think about it, when you start diving into the regs just like they are, when you know FMR Vol 2A, which is a lot of how what governs what type of dollars we can use and on what types of contracts, when you start understanding the contracting language as much as they do, you can help them problem solve, and get them motivated and getting them pumped up about hey, we got to do better. We got to come up with a better contracting vehicle. Yeah, backing um, up that resourceful kind of mindset that mm -hmm. you were touching on earlier. Yep, yep. So. I mean, it's uh, a lot of times you can spend two years just to get on contract. Hmm. Two years of your entire program office trying to get something on contract before you even start work. That's tedious, it sounds. Yeah. Or you can find creative ways to get on contract in six months or three months. Right? Okay. Um, it just depends. If you try and do things the traditional way, you're probably not going to get where you need to go anywhere fast. Um, so, I, I mean, that's... That's the, that's your kind of core team, but any at any given moment you're trying to make sure that um, things are on track. Mm -hmm. You're going down range to get your hands dirty and and make sure that that your team is meeting the needs of the warfighter, right? You're sending your contractor down range to um, do user studies to make sure that they really understand what what is needed and how to best to meet their needs. Um, you're going to the production facility, make sure that they're on track and that they have what they need. Um, you're uh, talking with your finance to make sure that you're on track to get the the, the funds that you need. Mm -hmm. Across the board, uh, you might even be going talking to your leadership saying, hey, I need more top cover. Uh, 
they're asking me for briefings every other day on my progress and it's not value added. Can you help me out? Mm -hmm. You might be going and advocating for your budget the next like two years from now, something you may not even, you might move on completely, be completely moved on to another job. And the program manager that comes behind you is, is receiving the budget that you helped advocate for. Okay. So you're not only in the moment, but you're also planning ahead, trying to um, come up with how much money your program will need in the out years. And you have to advocate for that and defend it. Okay. So it sounds like your job is like balancing like this type of triad of making sure it's on time, on budget, and on par with the quality that you expected. Does yeah, that sum you, it up similarly? You're, you're talking about cost schedule performance. Okay. Right? Um, and sometimes you'd be surprised if that's all you focus on. Um, it's real easy to separate yourself from things. So there's more going on behind the scenes than those three things. Yeah. It, I, I really, I, as a program manager, it is cost schedule performance, right? I got to come in under cost. I got to manage my budget. I got to deliver things on time or early, mm-hmm. and I got to deliver something that is of meaning or relevance um, to the to the warfighter, right? Um, I think sometimes we place the wrong emphasis on things, okay. and um, we think that we are uh, focusing so much on performance, uh, but what we're really doing is just taking longer to think that we got the the perfect thing. Mm-hmm. But the longer we take away from the idea to when we actually put something in the hands of the warfighters, uh, the higher the risk, um, the higher the likelihood that it is not relevant nor, nor what they need. Okay. So I think we just cost schedule and performance is important, but we need to place emphasis on um, iterative design, get something out that of value that they can start using and that you can learn from. And you can validate either you're going the right direction or going the wrong direction. Mm-hmm. Um, and it allows you to pivot whenever you need to. So cost schedule performance is great. You know, you can just be, hey, I'm, I'm on cost, I'm on schedule, I'm on performance. If that is your only focus, you're probably not going to get the best capability out there, in mm-hmm. my humble opinion. Okay. So you're Army prior enlisted, or at least in the yep. Guard. Um, and you said you've worked with soft components and stuff, and you're talking about making sure that the warfighter is equipped properly. Does that, like, prior um, enlisted status give you any sort of, like, greater appreciation for, say, getting making sure that, you like, the, the end product that you're developing is something that is of quality? I'm always going to be a grunt at heart. Mm-hmm. I'm always going to think about how I or my peers were on the receiving end of equipment that wasn't as good as it could have been, right? Mm-hmm. Um, I, you know, even my time as a satellite operator, I was dealing with equipment that was delivered to us that we had to work with. I think just having that mindset, and you don't have to go be enlisted. You don't have to go do an OPEX. I encourage it. If as an acquisition officer, the best you can go is go TDY. Go TDY for two weeks and tell the maintenance officer, hey, can you let me work on your on your ops floor with your airmen? I want to see what they're doing. I want to learn. Like, well, there's nothing wrong in that area. It's like, that's not the point. Mm-hmm. I need to think about, I need to have that passion for, hey, this tool takes me 15 hours to use. I have an idea. If we could, if we did this, this, and this, we could get it done in five. Mm-hmm. Why are we not leveraging that? But when you don't have that mindset and you're so far removed from who you're supporting, you're not going to have that drive or that um, passion or that um, motivation to get things done. Mm-hmm. I know in, in the last organization I was with in Castle Run, 
we actually had exchange officers who were operators, right? Um, they were Intel operators, 14N. And I've, I've talked to 14Ns where I tell them, hey, go do a 14N tour and then go into acquisitions for a tour and help them learn how to empathize with the capabilities that you need. Okay. Help get that better capability. I believe that one of the reasons why Castle Run was so successful was because we had operators coming in saying, we have to do better. And they would get answers like, yeah, but we can't. And they're like, no, we don't have a choice. Mm -hmm. We have to do better. And um, that determination, that drive from them helped change the culture uh, in the acquisitions community to say, you know what, all right, we got to figure something out. Mm -hmm. um, so having that mindset is incredibly important. There's a lot of different ways to get it, but seeking out that mindset and keeping it in the forefront of empathizing and being fully, you know, a bias for action and, in, you know, having um, intense customer focus um, is going to drive the best behaviors in my humble opinion. Okay. Um, you're talking about going downrange a lot, TD-wise. Yep. What, what is, say, like, I've talked to other acquisitions officers and they've said deployments TD-wise, they... They vary in your, um, like, what part of your career you're in. So say, 01 through 03 is different from 04 to 06, different beyond that. Can you speak to that at all? Uh, so I'll categorize deployments different from TDYs for acquisition officers. Mm -hmm. um, in general, for the most part, deployments for acquisition officers means that you will be going and doing some form of staff job. Um, because you know how to plan, you know how to communicate, you know how to uh, run a staff, mm -hmm. right? Running a program team is the same as running a staff. It's a little bit different application, but you can apply yourself in that. Um, you know how to um, kind of uh, uh, problem solve and, and apply yourself in, in those types of situations. What you won't be doing is going down range and doing acquisitions. <laughs> Very most likely. Okay. You most likely will not deploy forward with the weapon system that you are trying to deliver. We just don't have those types of holes downrange because guess what? Who's they don't need a acquisition officer who's not trained in operating a uh, you know an aircraft, right? Mm -hmm. They have pilots to do that. Yeah. They have maintainers who are trained to do that. So we can't go in and you know backfill a, a maintainer or a pilot. Um, I'll tell you I, so. My one deployment that I had uh, was to with the contracting organization. Now it was more like base contracting, like um, toilets and, and toilet paper and food, uh, security forces, you know, anything to keep the base alive. We were helping to, to stand those things up, and it was for um, for Afghanistan. Um, and so that was that was a pretty neat experience. But again, uh, I was I was supporting. I was in a support role. I was actually in staff. I w I'm not a trained contracting officer, so I couldn't do contracting, mm -hmm. right? I understood it, but I'm not, I didn't have a warrant. Mm -hmm. um, and so they put me on staff on the operations side. So I was integrating with um, the Ministry of the Interior on the Afghan side because they wanted to know who we were hiring to secure our bases. Uh, if you go and do a whole lot of research on, um, on you know, um, security and hiring the locals a lot of times that um, would come from the local chiefs right and so if you hired from too many from one local chief then you were actually in turn giving them extra power right so there was okay, a yeah. there was a large process that we 
uh, worked with them on that. So does that have anything to do with acquisitions? No. But is it a good experience to get? Yeah, to, to understand uh, you know, how to staff things, how to understand um, how to work with a, a large organization or multiple organizations? Sure, it opens up your aperture. I also helped write the retrograde plan for the entire um, command to pull out of Afghanistan and wow. slowly pull back, right? Um, so that was a pretty neat experience. Anything to do with acquisitions? Not necessarily, but a lot of the same skill sets are there. Okay. Um, I will say that in general, it's frustrating because most other career fields, if you're a doctor, you deploy as a doctor, right? Um, if, if you're a pilot, you deploy as a pilot. In the acquisitions field, we typically don't get to do that. Um, but I always say, you know what, pick up a football wherever you go. And, and if you're going to be away from your family and in harm's way, you might as well just make the best of it and, and make yourself valuable. Mm-hmm. Um, on TDYs, uh, I probably went TDY two to three times a, a month um, okay. on average. And it was to a contracting facility. It was to, um, it was to headquarters to talk about requirements or where we're, how we're progressing on things. Sometimes it was to D.C. to talk to, gres- to congressional staffers because um, they wanted a brief on something and we needed to provide it to them. Uh, you go to the Pentagon and um, talk to the um, to your PIM up there. So that's what's called your program element monitor. They're kind of they not only manage your budget, but this another program's budget and like multiple programs are binned into one one bigger pot and they manage that whole pot. And so they're trying to figure out do I pay for this or do I pay for that? And so you're going and advocating for your program over the others. Okay. Um, and and then. Go to the contractor facilities where they're building stuff. Go down range, and down range doesn't have to be like, you know, um, to the flight line at Al Yadid. Um, if you can, it's good. Um, but even just going to a local maintenance uh, squadron here and saying, "Hey, what's going on with this tool that we just delivered you? Is it working?" Well, no, it's not. How can we make it better? Do this, this, and this. Or what else is bothering you? Well, if you could help us out with this, and then you're able to come back and help everything out so um it is the the tdy schedule it's all over the place uh, sometimes they're planning conferences sometimes uh um like i said you're just you're you're gonna go to an actual facility where things are getting worked on and fixed mm-hmm. and you're just making sure things are going in the right direction okay and so you're talking about deployments um usually those staff opportunities are for oh four and above or is it like say you have a captain that's capable will they put them in that position mm-hmm Okay. Yeah, I mean, it might be a lower position on the staff, right? But it's still an important role. Mm-hmm. Um, there's lots of different... I, I, I served in staff, and I think most of the folks I've talked to serve in staff, right? Um, we just had a major who went... I was a major... Uh, I was a captain. I pinned on major while I was deployed. Um, and we just had a major go downrange. Um, she was chief of staff for a, for a uh, deployed um, air wing out there. Okay. In, in Jordan. Um, but, yeah, there's lots of opportunities out there. It's just different. It's, that's, we're one of the career fields that you don't get to practice what you've been trained on. Not directly, anyways. Mm. Well, it sounds interesting. There's a couple of programs if you ever want to do the ghost program um, through SOCOM. What's that? Uh, you go and spend a couple of months. Uh, so, typically, you're in, a let's say, a, a random program office in the Air Force. Uh, you compete for the ghost program. And um, it's a deployment uh, partially down to Tampa. Hope the weather's up there going to do okay with this hurricane, right? But uh, they go down there and they spend four months 
at SOCOM, learning about SOCOM acquisitions, and then they actually go downrange and support the unit that they're delivering to. Um, and a lot of times they're feeding us stuff back like, hey, if we just this mod you just uh, sent out here, it's not working, or um, can we get two more of those, or, or those types of things. Mm -hmm. um, so there's a lot of kind of liaison help giving us immediate feedback on things that, that we were doing in the acquisition side. And it's a great experience. It teaches you a lot about um, why SOCOM acquisitions is so successful. Mm -hmm. It sounds to me like this job for you has been very rewarding in that sense that like you love going to your job every day and like being able to see the end product yeah. is something that like well before we started the podcast i told you you know one of the things and i suspect everyone can relate to this here is you just want to go get your hands dirty mm -hmm. um you know and i'll be honest i i i was tired of learning and i just want to go do right mm -hmm. um what i will tell you since just as a very quick aside don't stop learning have a passion for learning i think i we just you know, had the grad school brief. <laughs> I know. Don't stop. There is so much out there, and you're only going to get better the more you learn. Mm -hmm. But at that point, I just want to go get my hands dirty. I wanted to go do. I wanted to make a difference, and I've always wanted to do that. So to me, um, getting to do those different jobs, whether it's working with uh, Big Safari, delivering mobility aircraft to AFSOC, or working down at SOCOM, and we were – um, getting the latest, greatest ammo and boots and missiles and helicopters and boats to the uh, special operators. It, knowing that I can get it done fast, that's, I mean, I, I want to go fast, right? Mm -hmm. I mean, the Talladega nice thing, right? So, <laughs> you know, I always want to go fast. I want to get capability out there because they need it. Um, so it's been extremely rewarding. And you get to work with some of the best folks in the world, right? Um, they're out there sacrificing just like you are. Um, so, yeah. It's, it's been a passion of mine. I would say probably the most enjoyable part about it was um, the alignment of my passion and the culture of those organizations. Um, so if you go and look at some of our more successful acquisition organizations, um, they are higher-performing teams, and they have a mindset um, which includes um, fail faster, right? Got, mm -hmm. The SOCOM mindset is fail faster. Most people are like, well, why the hell would you want to fail? That's not a plan. No, we're learning. Yeah. The faster I fail, I, the faster I learn, the faster I get a legitimate, relevant capability out there. Eliminate like the wrong pathways yes. faster. Yes, yeah. you're learning faster, right? And you know you, you're burning down risk every single time. Um, so, and that that's probably the, the biggest thing for me is, is just get capability out there. Don't, mm -hmm. don't sit back. Don't be okay with, with uh, complacency. So the, the cultures in those organizations were extremely critical to having a successful organization. I mean, if you look at Big Safari, those who say it can't be done shouldn't be getting in the way of those doing it, right? Mm -hmm. Oh, you can't do that. Then get out of my way, Yeah. right? Um, and, you know, uh, my boss in Big Safari was one who helped put hellfires on predators. You can't put hellfires on a drone. Well, guess what our reapers are doing now? Guess what? I mean, think about now that, Now it's right? like a daily occurrence. You're like, no, you can't do that. You know, you're not going to be able to be successful in that. Get out of my way. Mm -hmm. I'll show you. So, um, you know, a lot of the, the, the SOCOM mentality as well. I, I, we're looking up on stuff on my wall yeah. here. <laughs> you know, fail fast, a lot of deliver faster. Yeah. Um, you know, it, I went, my first, 
when I sh uh, showed up to, to SOCOM, uh, our acquisition executives, so there's five acquisition executives. There might be six now with, with Space Force. Um, but this is like the, the highest ranking individual um, reporting to the DOD, um, the undersecretary for acquisitions. These are the highest ranking individuals that are responsible for all the acquisitions in their service, right? Um, so I, I got there and uh, right, off the, right off the bat, he's like, just go fast, get mm -hmm. capability out there. And we had our, the Air Force acquisition executive in Kessel Run, his statement to us was, don't ever arrive, reimagine. And it's the mindset of just push the envelope, get out there, get capability out there. It's uh, a perfect, you know, a good plan now is better than a perfect plan next week. Well, I guess I counter to that, say, like, does that just matter of you being good at your job to to ensure that, say, something goes wrong of, like, a product that you produce and push out to the warfighter, it's ineffective? Like, how does that, um, like, affect the unit as a whole, not only on the war side, warfighter side, but also the acquisition side? Well, if you took 20 years to deliver it and it sucks, you've lost a lot of trust with that unit. Mm -hmm. But if you took two weeks to give them a prototype and they tell you it sucks and you come back six weeks later and you fixed part of it and it's a market improvement, you're, you build trust with them. Okay. If you deliver and you respond and you react and you show them that you can help, that you can be relevant to their time, the trust goes up. So the faster you can solve other people's problems, it's like better than coming up with this perfect solution that is just way past due. Is what you're saying? Absolutely. Okay. And you you can presume that you know, but you don't know until you actually validate and put it in, mm -hmm. in the hands, right? Um, if, if, if that was the model for success, um, you could go from nothing to a billionaire because you just had the, the best idea yeah. and it, it would work every time. You we have a bunch of billionaires it. who, hey, I snapped my fingers and I came up with the right idea. Mm-hmm. Yeah, what about the billion entrepreneurs out there that had an idea and they thought it would be amazing? And mm -hmm. they put effort and time into it and they quickly learned that it didn't work. But then guess what? They learned what didn't work, but they found out something new and then they became the, the billionaire or the millionaire, right? Mm -hmm. But because they had that failure, because they, they weren't afraid to go out there and actually put it in the hands. They didn't plan, 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 plan. You. You break something down in the smallest group possible to where you can validate that what you're doing is actually value added. Mm -hmm. I think it also comes, I mean, I'm speaking by no means with experience here, but from what it, what it sounds like is that you need to put like a sense of ego to the side of like making sure like failure is like bound to happen eventually and that it will happen. But as long as you rebound from that failure, that's what ultimately pushes this mission forward. If you design your culture to, um, of your organization to be focused around never producing failure, um, you likely won't do well when you have failure. Mm -hmm. <laughs> that's, the, that's, the, that's the hard part for people to understand. But if you design your culture around, hey, uh, we uh, anticipate mistakes and we value mistakes because that teaches us something, and you are expecting those to happen, guess what? You rebound from them a lot faster. It's kind of similar to that growth mindset, right? Mm -hmm. But if you build your organization um, around, um, you know, there's, there's, 
I'm, I'm going to quickly get outside of my, my expertise here, but there's discussions about chaos engineering. There's discussions about the black swan events. And if you, um, when you, and you can go read about black swan, you can read about chaos engineering, but it's basically embracing that you're not actually in control. And if you think you're in control, you're probably even more out of control. Mm -hmm. How you validate that you're in control is by putting capability in the hands of the warfighter at the smallest amount possible to validate that the direction that you're going is actually the right direction to go. Mm -hmm. Okay. I, I had never heard about chaos engineering. That sounds, I mean, beyond me as the, the a biggest, mere Like having a transformational cu culture, right? One that... Um, is continually changing to meet the needs of, of the challenge that it's facing um, will rebound substantially faster through uh, from a failure than ones that were like, well, no, we're gonna we're just gonna plan. We we can mitigate all the risk. Mm -hmm. um, what they end up doing is not validating anything, and all they're doing is building up an unmitigated risk that you don't know what the you think you know what the risk is, but you don't know because you haven't put it in front of you actually haven't tested it out. Yeah. Um, so yeah. Well, I guess. Do you think you have um, any experience? I mean, you, you've touched on a lot of things that you think are pr you're proud of in your career, but anything that had like an especially big impact on what you were fighting for and a story that you would be willing to share? The big impact that I'm fighting for. Um, that's interesting. I think, you know... I think any situation I go into, I try and figure out, like, what am I doing here? Like, mm -hmm. It better be worth my time. Uh, I mean, I can tell you impactful stories I'm having with cadets here, and uh, it's extremely rewarding, right? You're participating uh, in one right now. Yeah. I came here to engage with cadets, for an example, right? That's why I came here. I wanted to uh, to, to give back and to, to engage with you all and get you all pumped up and charged up and ready to go out there and make a difference, uh, you know, we, I tell both my lead classes and uh, the management class I, I taught this time last year was, I wasn't successful because Lieutenant Colonel Matthew Ross had all the right ideas. I was successful because I helped remove barriers for amazing lieutenants and captains who had the right ideas. And mm -hmm. a lot of times too, uh, it was, it wasn't necessarily that I immediately removed the barrier. Uh, there was times where I put up barriers and I had amazing lieutenants and captains say, hey, you're getting in my way, and I really had to take that step back and be like, oh, crap. And then it was like, well, hey, let me help. Who else is getting in your way, right? Uh, so for me, coming back here is thinking about I need, we need more of those lieutenants and captains with that determination and that drive to, to uh, help keep our Air and Space Forces relevant. Mm -hmm. um, so, I mean, that's just like an example. I mean, it's very close to me right now. Um, I, I don't know. I've always been just focused on getting capability out there. I've, my dad was a police officer for 27 years, so I, I knew he was on the front line. When you realize that your peers, your classmates, I always try and talk to you all about, hey, your classmate, the pilot, you know, they're depending upon you. Their families are depending upon you. Our country is depending upon you getting them a relevant capability so they can go and do the fight. Mm -hmm. um, that's that's my, my drive and my passion, and, and it depends upon the capability that I'm delivering I usually can orient myself pretty quickly, and then it's, all right, now let's go. Mm -hmm. Let's get after it. Um, it was, I'm, I'm conflicted because um, 
I don't know, the last 10 years have been amazing. Amazing opportunities. I, for one, never thought I'd get to work with SOCOM, with special operators. Um, I grew up reading books uh, about SEALs because, um, mm-hmm. you know, my dad, he was um, he was on the SWAT team. So that was like, that's how I got interested in, in special forces type stuff. And I read books about it. I read Richard Marcinko, although I've come to learn that uh, he's not as uh, uh, revered in the in the real SEALs community. <laughs> but I what I always appreciated was the mentality, right? Um, and I, I don't think that you can go wrong by the, the mentality and just the, the appreciation for what they do. Mm-hmm. Um, getting to work with them and being extremely driven about getting them capability. If you, if you think about what they're actually doing and the odds they're going against, um, it's a huge honor to get to be able to be a part of that team. Mm-hmm. And so that was pretty amazing. Um, the working with Castle Run, so y'all, may, I, I haven't really even talked about Castle Run. If, if you don't know it, go check out castlerun.af.mil. Um, the thing that's exciting about Castle Run was I got to participate in um, extending a culture and mindset that I had seen in programs like Air Force 10 Cap and Big Safari and um, SOCOM and come into a traditional software development o- um, program office that was failing. Um, $600 million, 10 years of development, and they hadn't delivered a single um, bit of capability to our air operation centers. These are who's fighting our air war for the JFAC, for the um, Geographic Combatant Command, right? Mm-hmm. 10 years, $600 million, we're not delivered a single thing. So much so that Senator McCain um, canceled the program. And so uh, I came in uh, about six weeks after um, some pretty amazing uh, individuals, Brian Kroger, Jeremiah Sanders, Adam Furtado, Tori Cuff, Enrique Ode, Carlos Veray, and many others who were getting, who decided to work with the IUX um, to say there's got to be a better way to do software development. And um, in six months, we were delivering new software, putting it in the hands of operators, um, so much so that I think our earliest development was after 80 days, we had delivered a software capability that um, the KAOC was using to um, plan dropping bombs uh, in Syria. Wow. So... Going from 10 years and nothing to 80 days and delivering capability and learning and reacting and so on and so forth um, was, an, was an amazing uh, experience to be a part of that team and to see that scale from one app to two apps to taking over the entire AOC program and modernizing it um, and really helping to change the mindset. Uh, what was amazing was we didn't just affect that one program. Um, we helped start a wave of culture change in the DOD to, to show that there's a better way. And all these um, legitimate modern uh, software companies within the DOD started popping up and uh, finding ways to get uh, relevant software out to our warfighters. So that was the last four years I got to be a part of. Uh, absolute amazing opportunity um, to, to get to see that. Extremely hard to um, get a, a higher performing culture uh, into that community and it wasn't just the program office it was um, the the MAGCOM who who was responsible for the requirements it was um, 
you know, the Pentagon who was responsible for helping to get us a budget or not get us a budget and mm-hmm. saying, well, yeah, but where's your plan? And, and, you know, keep going back to the requirements and trying to force us back into the old waterfall ways of, of delivering capability, like trying to design a tank instead of um, how quick uh, the, the technology turns over in IT. Mm-hmm. So absolutely amazing opportunity. Um, and knowing that you were getting to go back and uh, we delivered new Intel software. In fact, I was talking with a classmate of mine. He's, um, he's the chief of targeting in CENTCOM. Not the chief, but he's a chief yep. of targeting. Um, but still up there. And it was rewarding to know that I was helping to get him software that actually was relevant so he could do a better job in targeting. Mm-hmm. Um, so I think I don't think, you know, the Air Force and the Space Force, they're pretty small. You don't have to throw the, the stone very far to realize how you can um, and should be focusing on someone that is right next to you to get them that capability. Mm-hmm. Well, that was pretty deep. <laughs> I, I, I came in here just kind of like only knowing just like slightly a little bit. I talked to acquisitions guys that like say um, the career fair or something like that. Mm-hmm. I didn't know that at the Speaking to someone as experienced as you, I I had no idea all the intricacies that go on with, I mean, it sounds just like you really just are have like a, a really intense focus on making sure that the product works well and making sure that you're solving problems so that the people or the problems that you're solving for, they can solve their problems even better. That's right. So yep. I can appreciate all your hard work that you've done because... I've had some amazing peers and some amazing uh, even subordinates who helped me to see how important that is. Mm-hmm. Um, I cannot claim that this is my only that it, this alone is my own view, and I'm the only one who's charging hard. There are some amazing acquisition officers out there. Uh, it's been an honor to serve alongside them. Um, uh, in a lot of ways, it's been a steep learning curve for me, and I've been an honor. It's been an honor to be in the right place to. Um, just support that and, and help continue to, to drive that change to stay relevant. Mm-hmm. Well, I guess to, we, we touched on this earlier. You're a grad here. Yep. And I, I, I kind of want to know this. So I would be talking to teachers and they say back when it was hard. So you are class of 2002 and you are here back in 2022, yeah. 20 years later, what, what are the differences that you see at the academy? Uh, you know, it's funny. Uh, um, I generally have positive memories of the academy. Mm-hmm. Um, I generally had a good time. Was I cynical like everyone else? I mean, I, it's, I guess in some sense, uh, it's a completely different discussion in, in Lead 400 about um, if if an organization is notorious for creating cynical officers, is there something wrong with the design of the organization, right? Mm-hmm. Um, and I think that we are still trying to explore that. Um, but I generally had a very positive experience. Uh, I don't consider myself a rearview mirror um, uh, graduate. I don't know if you know that reference, no. or not, but it's like the last time I want to see Academy is my review. Oh, okay, yeah, yeah, yeah. Right? Um, I mean, I, maybe for two or three days, I was like, yeah, I'm, I'm done. I'm free. I'm, <laughs> I'm, free, of, I'm, I'm free of the zoo. Um, get to go, you know, get my, actually get my hands dirty. I'm ready to, done, I'm done learning. I want to go do, right? Um, don't stop learning. Uh, 
but it was, I generally had a, a very good positive experience. Um, and so it's been extremely rewarding to get to come back and to engage with you all. Uh, referring to, is it harder, is it easier? I don't know. Um, I was reading uh, General Clark's letter about like, hey, when I was a pilot, I, it was a different war. Mm -hmm. And now y'all are pilot going to be pilots, and you're when he sent out this morning, mm -hmm. yeah. And y'all are pilots, and y'all now in this world, and you're going to be flying a different war than I did. I, the things are different. Here's what I will say: I very much appreciate, um, from my perspective, what I see, and I I, I know that it's not perfect, um, and I I read instances where it's not, and I really hope that we continue to. Um, uh, get better at it but I think in general we take care of each other better than we used to mm -hmm. um, there's is more emphasis on uh, helping each other out instead of judging each other are you talking like say a first seat to a sophomore or a freshman sure okay yeah I didn't or, know if it was like or just party I mean or... even within the classes right like I mean I think that w the things that I appreciate is we're um, placing more emphasis on inclusion and celebrating diversity and and i'm not just saying this to be cliche anyone in my lead class that that comes in they they know that it means a lot to me and i've lived the benefit of being in inclusive and diverse organizations mm -hmm. um and i think that that is something that's going to continue to be a growth area for us and when i see how you all interact to me there's a higher level of maturity and understanding and appreciation for that than what we had. Mm -hmm. And I think that it is um, only gonna make us better. I think um, I had a lot of great classmates, but there was also people who treat each other poorly, right? Mm -hmm. There was still all the same behaviors you had in high school carried forward through to here. I don't think I see that as much now. I think I see more of an awareness of like, well, that's pretty freaking petty. Well, mm -hmm. am I gonna like, how about I, yeah. If I don't have anything positive to say, I'm just going to shut up. Mm -hmm. right? I don't need to lift myself up by tearing other people down. Mm -hmm. I lift myself up and then I lift more people up with me. Right? Um, I think that's, I think in general, um, things change. Um, I actually wrote in my, um, in my, I don't know, whenever, whenever you become a senior and you get in your book and they're going to, instead of oh, just quote? a picture, you get to give a quote. Yeah. Right? yeah. So my quote was the only con the only thing constant was change. <laughs> Quite um, the antithesis. Yeah, I mean, because everyone would come in. Oh, I'm the next general. I'm the next colonel, and I'm going to make a change. And I'm going to me, 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 right? So I was that. That's what it seemed like. Oh, why do nothing's broken? Why does it need to be fixed? Mm -hmm. I think there are things that are broken, and they need they do need to be fixed. Um, it's hard to see that though because that's just all we've known. And I hope that we continue to take that step back and say, is there a better way? Mm -hmm. And um, if I, I do think we're better, I had a, a 90, a 82 grad here today as a guest speaker. And he's like, my gosh, it's cadets are sharp, sharper than we were. Right. Hey, is that a bad thing? No, that's a good thing. That's <laughs> good. Know. You're, you're yeah. blowing me away. He's like, I swear they'll come back and say all these things. I'm like, all right. So really true? my class was the last class to pull chintz. To pull what? Chins. What does that mean? Um, so at a position of attention is four degrees, you were supposed to pull your chin. Oh, you yeah. See the, okay. You had to see the double chin, right? So my class was the last class. They stopped that when I was, I was a freshman. Thank God. And, you know, there was talks about it um, that, oh, they're going soft, right? 
I think we really need to think about what drives, what are, what are we really trying to instill in our officers, mm-hmm. right? Um, there is certainly a, a, an important part of grit and survival uh, type uh, strengths that we need to have, right? That mental toughness, because uh, you're going to need it. Trust me, you're going to need it out there. You're going to need that grit. You're going to need that mental toughness when you get out there. Um, but there's also the aspect of like, is that the only thing we teach? Mm-hmm. Is all we're going to teach our officers, our brand new lieutenants when they go out and commission is all they're going to walk away with is I know how to survive. Um, and I know how to create surviving survival situations for my subordinates. <laughs> <laughs> right. I, I don't think that the entire Academy is trying to do that, but let's, if we don't continue to challenge ourselves and look at the outcomes of what the Academy is producing, um, then I think we're missing an opportunity. Mm-hmm. Um, and if we're just going to say that's just um, not as tough or, um, you know, they're going soft or they're losing a warfighter mentality, well, let's really be honest with ourselves and take a step back and say, well, maybe they're right or maybe they're not. Like, what what purpose does that really serve? Mm-hmm. And if we can find a good reason behind it, sometimes tradition, even if there isn't a good reason, can be beneficial, right? Mm-hmm. That helps align us, and it's it's you know we you know uh, happy sad glad you know happy glad glad right. I I I still see bumper stickers with that as I drive around, right? You know, um, so there there's little things that connect us, right? But I think we should always be asking, with brutal prioritization, are we doing what's right mm-hmm. are we getting the outcome that we want or are we just doing because we've always done it so um yeah a I, real cost benefit analysis like on everything is it is it really doing what it should be doing mm-hmm. as you if you as you're yelling at your four degree is are you going to yell at your enlisted is that how you're going to communicate with them is that how you're going to get the best results out of them mm-hmm. or do you recognize that that one instance in, in the first two weeks of basic is you're teaching them how to handle under stress Right. Mm-hmm. But you have to, you know, every, everything should have a purpose. And if it doesn't and it's got to have a prioritized purpose because I can come up with a purpose for anything, but it should have a prioritized purpose. Mm-hmm. Y'all don't have much time here. Four years is nothing. And we pack it full a whole bunch of stuff. And there is a lot of important stuff. So anything we have you doing better damn well be worth your time and worth our time and the outcome that we get from it. So um, I. It's real easy to, to get in those comparisons. Yeah. It was neat for me to get to see uh, firsties jumping in the in the fountains with the red hats on. And then six months, you know, six, not even six weeks later, um, the new red hat basic. Because I was, I was a red tag bastard, right? 2002, mm-hmm. I was a red tag bastard. <laughs> um, and uh, it was neat to see the freshmen coming in. It was neat to go in and, and walk. And uh, I was an associate AOC this summer. Um, and that was really neat to, to be with the cadre to see how they're leading. They're, they're focused on what actually develops the, the airmen instead of what, you know, borderline hazing, you mm-hmm. know what I mean? Yeah. Um, but it was also neat to talk to the basics and say, hey, 24 years ago, I was wearing your red hat. I was sitting in, I was standing in those boots. I mean, they were black, mind you. I actually had to polish my boots. Thank you very much. Maybe, maybe that's where we can get into harder, right? <laughs> I actually had to polish my boots. Y'all don't even have to polish anything. Um, <laughs> the shoes come shiny. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Uh, but my point is, is it was neat to be able to go back and say, hey, I was in, you can do this, stick together, work together as a team, lift each other up, get through this. 
um, learn from each other, help each other. You'll do just fine. So it's, it's, uh, I, I think, I think if we have the good parts continue forward, let's, let's, you know, uh, things that really don't serve a purpose. Let's have an honest, truly honest talk with ourselves and be f focused, not on output, but outcome. Mm -hmm. The outcome is the most important thing. So I couldn't ask for a better first talk with the acquisitions officer. I really appreciate your time here, it's sir. It's been an honor. Um, if, if anybody has questions, are you willing for them to come out and reach out to you? Absolutely. Okay. Yeah. Well, Lieutenant Colonel Ross, That's he's, what up I came here for. Yeah. he's up in the management department. <laughs> I, I really appreciate you coming on and hopefully this can be a useful resource for anybody else who wants to listen to. Go so. out there, make a difference, be relevant and have fun too. Mm -hmm. But focus on culture. Culture is everything. And, uh, it's been an honor, been an honor to be here with you all and, uh, looking for more, uh, opportunities. So thanks y'all. Really appreciate it. All right. Thank you, Lieutenant Colonel Ross. All right. Thank you. Well, there you have it. Lieutenant Colonel Matthew Ross, a highly experienced acquisitions officer, the type of guy you want solving your problems. Keep a lookout for my wing wides as I'll have polls in them asking for your input on who you want to hear from and what you want asked. Thanks again for listening. You're cleared hot. Thank you.